0: Thanks for downloading the UCD Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. For more information, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities. In this episode, a recording from the Irish Memory Studies Network Distinguished Lecture Series on the theme of Methodologies of Memory. This series is generously funded by UCD College of Arts and Celtic Studies and the Irish Research Council's New Foundation Scheme. The seventh and final lecture in this series was given by Dr. Kate Kenny from Queen's University Belfast. Dr. Kenny's lecture, Whistleblowing in Banks and the Role of Time, was recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media. So, um, what I'm going to talk about today, basically, given the topic um, of the series on memory studies, Uh, is very much about concepts of time and how they relate to some recent research that I've been carrying out. So the project that I'm going to talk about is um, basically it's been sort of my research for the last, I'd say, five or six years. I became very interested post-crisis here in Ireland about the fact that many ordinary men and women working in banks and financial services organisations probably saw hints of what was coming, probably saw things happening that shouldn't have been happening. I mean, I know people who work in banks. I I know accountants. I'm sure we all do. They're not sort of evil Machiavellian puppet masters that probably planned to make a situation where the Irish government would uh, find itself bailing out um, financial institutions to a huge amount. Similarly, in other countries... What about the ordinary people, ordinary men and women going to work in these institutions on a daily basis who knew that certain shortcuts were being taken, that certain wrongdoing was happened, happening and said nothing? So I was very interested in that silence in financial services and I thought that a good way to study it would be to look at the people who did speak out. Okay? So where were the whistleblowers in financial services in the run up to the recent crisis? And so this is what I started to look at through advocacy groups like Transparency International, um, Whistleblowers UK, in the United States you have a group called the Government Accountability Project. All of these advocacy groups work with whistleblowers, so I made contact with them and through that gathered um, a sample of individuals who had spoken out in financial services. The methodology was very much in-depth interviews, uh, secondary data gathered, I was interested in people's um, experiences of whistleblowing in this sector, what challenges that they might have come across, what sort of things might have enabled them to speak out, and the various experiences uh, that they might have encountered while going through the journey. And it's very much a journey. Um, The idea of whistleblowing is a, a sort of a singular act or something that you get up in the morning and decide you'll do that day, I'll whistleblow on Tuesday. This isn't sort of accurate... Whistleblowing is something that tends to spiral from, say, you raising a small complaint to your boss who you hope will do something about it. Um, You find that maybe that's not being dealt with. And in some cases, for example, in the case of most of the people that I'll be um, talking about today, this spirals into a kind of a retaliation situation where maybe the organisation attempts to, to silence the whistleblower. The whistleblower then becomes annoyed and uh, tries to fight for their cause. So it's a process that can take place over years and that can spiral from the raising of a small issue or the raising of a large issue but without realising the the sort of aggravation that might result. It can spiral into um, quite a conflicted situation. So, one of the things that came across in this study um, repeatedly was this idea that time is a key construct, a key, key issue for these processes of resistance, for these struggles um, on the part of individual whistleblowers. And it's something that I hadn't come across at all in the literature on whistleblowing. And in the literature on resistance in organisations, which is a very big literature, talks about everything from kind of small-scale resistance to, say, um, union conflicts or a little bit on whistleblowing. There doesn't seem to be a lot on this issue of um, time either. So what this paper that I'm going to present today is very much on this this idea of time. Uh, Time, as we know, can be quite a a weighty thing. So while seeming quite neutral and benign in one case, when you go through something as stressful as, for many of these individuals, uh, the struggle that they found themselves in against their their banks or their financial services institutions over a period of time, it can grind a person down in many ways. It can have a lot of sort of impacts on the self or the self-identity of the individual that mightn't be immediately obvious. So I guess what I'm going to sort of Try and paint a picture of is um, this role of time and uh, the impact that it has on identity. Okay, so theoretically, though, just to set the scene, the perception of time, um, to move from this sort of linear perspective of time as something that exists uh, in a continuum to the idea of time as a social construct that's different for each person, subject to complex social, cultural, political influences. So, I mean, uh, theoretically, this is um, obviously quite accepted and quite a well-known concept of time. In terms of subjectivity and identification, a number of scholars, I'm thinking here of McAdams in 1996, and others talk about how time can be used as resource for individuals when we construct a sense of self, or as we construct our identifications. As we form a picture of who we are in the world and an understanding of ourselves, time can come into play. For example, we can hark back to our past selves when we're sort of narrating who we are today, or um, talk about the future self that we're going to become. And these things we kind of use or act as resources when we're constructing identifications. Certain scholars of late have looked at, or um, not so late, Halford and Lennon and Kuhn, 2006, have talked about organizational resistance and time. And While they're not talking about whistleblowers, they discuss how when individuals attempt to resist various forces in the organizations that they work in, the concept of time, past and present can really influence um, how they construct themselves as resistant identities. Okay, So they might talk about how well you know, back in the past, you know, in my family there's always been a history of dissent, you know, and uh, I'm just kind of continuing on that idea. Or I don't want to, in the future, look back on my present self and regret that I didn't speak up when I, when I did or I didn't resist um, a certain problematic aspect. So there has been some uh, literature to look at that idea of resistance and time in organisations. One body of work uh, within this sort of trajectory has drawn on psychoanalytic approaches to understand this notion of time. So here um, I think of Yanis Gabriel's work and particularly in 2012 he had an article in Organisation Studies in which he looks at the past and past memories, uh, family memories but also past desires, past fantasies and how these come to play and come to bear on um, the present self if you like. In terms of the future selves, uh, Burkhard Siever's work um, talks about how, in many cases, and he now is not looking at resistance, but he's more looking at managers and sort of senior managers and why they act in certain ways and particularly why they develop certain subjectivities. He talks about the desire to leave a certain legacy. So the desire to sort of paint one's future self based on uh, one's current uh, subjectivity, if you like. And again, psychoanalysis... uh, fits in to what Seavers is talking about. So these are just some of the ideas of um, time as a sort of a social construct. Time is something that's subjective, um, politically constructed, if you like, a cultural resource, but that comes to bear on a sense of self and sense of identity. So that's that's sort of the theoretical backdrop. So I'll just park that for the minute and introduce the study a little bit. Um, The study was... uh, Based on whistleblowing in the United States, as well as um, the UK, Ireland, Switzerland, and Germany. So my aim was to kind of understand how financial services organisations in those very different parts of the globe might have presented similar sorts of scenarios for potential whistleblowers. And indeed, I found, you know, just as an aside, that it was the case that there are certain sort of cultures of banking and cultures of finance that have an awful lot of commonality, whether you're in, say, Texas, as one woman was, Linda Almonte, who blew the whistle on J.P. Morgan, or the Irish financial services sector. This kind of culture of banking, while not completely homogenous across different country contexts, was, has certainly had a lot of uh, key similarities. So one of the things, as I said, that really came forward in most of these um, interviews uh, well, sorry first, sorry, first of all, the, the methods uh, over 20 in depth interviews with whistleblowers in financial services, UK, Ireland, Switzerland, and the United States, and some of the banks Lloyds, HBOS in the UK, Allied Irish Bank, Irish Nationwide, Citigroup, JP Morgan. So, based on secondary accounts and transcripts of parliamentary debates, public inquiries, and media sources. So, that sort of formed the data set. So, as I said before, one of the things that really um, Tied people's accounts together was the notion of time. So, typically, if you think about if you, you know, those of us who work here, if, if you raised a complaint, a serious complaint about, say, wrongdoing at UCD, I don't know, financial misconduct or whatever it might be, you know, you think about the length of time that might uh, occur between wh- when you sort of gather the information to back up what it is that you're stating, contact your boss, wait for the response from your boss. The boss probably has to go to the centre, wait for him, we know you know, how long this would take. Then perhaps contacting uh, various legal entities, waiting for that. If nothing gets done, going outside to whatever sort of external body. This can all take years and years and years and certainly one of the things that tied people's stories together was the sheer longevity of people's uh, whistleblowing stu- struggles, if you like. So what kinds of things um, came out of of that longevity? What kinds of things would make me kind of feel that time in this case is worth looking at a little more? Um, The first aspect is this notion of time and the relationship uh, to self-esteem. So very much it seems that people um, found that this sheer weight of time and the longevity of their struggle would eat away over time at a person's self-esteem. The first aspect of this often has to do with long-term unemployment. So an awful lot of, uh, a huge number of whistleblowers um, who, for whatever reason, may be fired from their organisation or may choose to leave their organisation, in many cases it's the latter, find themselves um, informally blacklisted in their industry. So we know statistically that 80 to 90% of people will just never work in their sector again. So if you ended up sort of, say, blowing the whistle on UCD, you know, sorry about this (laughs) analogy, and uh, this was something that was escalated to the situation where you become this kind of external whistleblower, you become known for being the UCD whistleblower, you probably won't work ever again in education, which is what you're trained to, it's what you're good at, it's what your CV is is based around what kind of earning potential might you have if that entire thing was cut off from you. So long-term unemployment is something that many people sort of um, found as a case. Um, Eileen Foster, who's based in... um, She was a whistleblower for uh, Bank of America, or countrywide as they, they were known, and she tried to alert... authorities to the fact that people were sending in fraudulent mortgage documents uh, repeatedly, repeatedly, and she kind of pointed this out um, uh, to her boss and tried to escalate it, and nothing was done about it. She ended up um, going outside the organization, to the uh, regulatory authority and was listened to and, in fact, took a case and won her case against the bank. She was then on 60 Minutes, this US program that deals with current affairs, and was celebrated in the press. So she's a really successful, if you like, whistleblower. Now, she sent away... 145 job applications extremely well qualified and fantastic references now from the boss that she worked with that respected her a lot but still could not find a job she now works um, in a position for I think it's about 40% of the salary she was on but she's the lucky one uh, or one of the lucky ones if you look at the case of Olivia um Green, who people might remember being the Irish nationwide whistleblower here in Ireland. So she was the lady who gave testimony against Michael Fingleton um, in court because she felt that Michael Fingleton was trying to scapegoat her good friend and colleague um, for some of the, uh, I suppose, exuberant lending practices that he was engaged in himself. So when Olivia actually gave testimony against... Fingleton, she found herself ostracised within the organisation. She was still working for Nationwide at the time. And eventually she left the organisation, but she found that although she applied for over 60 positions and was highly, highly qualified, that she just wasn't able to get a job. So she decided to ask her, um, the employment recruitment person, would they mind leaving her name off the CV just temporarily? And she got straight through to the second and then the third round of this job process that she was going in. It was a good job, and she wanted the job. And finally, of course, it's interview day, so her name has to be released, and the interview was cancelled. So that was a pretty good test of this blacklisting that she was subjected to. And as Olivia would say, you know, she, she said, I'm totally unemployable in financial services. I will never get a job in this industry again. Similarly, um, Linda Almonte, actually a third woman, interesting, at J.P. Morgan, she, you know, she said, oh, look, you Google me and my name is everywhere. Any company that would hire me will see that. I can never live that down. So it's not just the long-term unemployment that seems to um, be a problem. It's the finality of it. So for many of these individuals, when you actually speak to them, it's the fact that this thing is going to be there forever. I'll never get a job. My long-term career um, outlook is extremely negative. So this unemployment, long-term unemployment aspect um, can create a sort of a vicious circle. Uh, What people then sort of described was that it's not just the being out of work but more the fact that long-term unemployment is something that's stigmatized. And while, as a whistleblower, you would have never positioned yourself in that sort of stigmatized um, place, that this was something that people were struggling with and found that, uh, as many people said, it's time becomes a feature there. It becomes, over months and years that pass, as you are, remain out of work, it becomes more and more difficult to be the kind of person who turns up well for an interview, who can put on a suit, who can come across as convincing. Self-esteem sort of is worn away gradually again by this um, aspect of time and creates a sort of a vicious circle that rejoining employment seems almost um, more difficult because of the time aspect. This is a quote from Graham Milne, uh, who was a whistleblower at Lloyds Bank, and he talks about the vicious circle. You know, He says, You find yourself becoming shy over time, even meeting other human beings. After a time, someone who's good at their job, successful at it, can turn into someone who can't even conceive of working with other people in a business environment. They've lost the confidence to sort of even face the situation. So it's important to sort of factor in that sort of longevity and and time aspect to see how these things uh, can eat away at a person. Interestingly, um, many people when I met them first would give the impression uh, when I was meeting them and interviewing of being employed. So most people would sort of keep a blazer and feel that it's extremely important to maintain the facade of gainful employment. And only after you get to know... the people that you realise that this isn't the case. For example, a number of the individuals have set up consulting organisations in financial services with perhaps a website and a a description on... And it's only after you you get to know people that you realise that maybe the client list is one or zero. Um, But it's this charade of kind of employment which feeds into the whole aspect of long-term unemployment being stigmatised and the need to sort of almost pretend that it's not the problem that can contribute to the problem in many ways, if that makes sense. So the third aspect there of um, self-esteem is to do with uh, retaliation from the organization. In many of the cases of the individuals that I spoke to, um, after blowing the whistle and speaking out and becoming kind of a uh, going public, if you like, with their claims of wrongdoing, um, the organization would retaliate in various ways. Uh, in some cases, this can be formal kinds of retaliation. We all know the sorts of um, formal ideas of maybe being um, demoted or uh, being, in, in rare cases, relatively rare cases, being asked to leave the organization. But there's also informal um, retaliation to do with, say, um, bullying or ostracization or given what's called the plant pot job, which is a job in which you don't contact anyone, you're maybe cut off from the computer systems. Uh, you become this sort of yeah in, in a, ineffective individual that's just working or just taking a paycheck, but not really engaging in the organisation at all. So various forms of uh, retaliation, but that can obviously also uh, really work on people's uh, sense of self-esteem. That sort of slow aspect of and I've um, written about this in other places. The impact of kind of um, informal bullying and uh, even formal retaliation on a sense of self-esteem one of the aspects of time in relation to this is that in many cases people's whistleblowing claims becomes about responding to that retaliation and, for example, taking a case against the organization because they've been retaliated against. But even time here plays um, a part because we have in law in this country and the United States and in most countries – where you have a statute of limitations that applies to any particular wrongdoing. So, for example, uh, the various executives in the United States that would have engaged in fraud in the run-up to the recent crisis, in many cases, you have a six-year window of opportunity in which to prosecute them for most kinds of fraud and that's out now in t- 2014 so there was a rush to prosecute various corrupt bankers last year and those that weren't caught in that net are out of the out, out of time so things are fine the same goes for a whistleblower who experiences Uh, retaliation, they have a certain period of time by which they can take a case against the person retaliating against them. Now, if you're struggling, again, with mental health issues or, you know, your self-esteem has been ground down in various ways and you're feeling the brunt of this kind of struggle, you often aren't well enough to take that case for the retaliation within the time period um, that's allotted to you by law. So again, time can kind of... uh, Work against people. In the case of Graham, now he, he blew the whistle on Lloyds Bank for um, what he claimed was defrauding pension holders when um, Lloyds Bank brought, bought over Scot- Scottish Widows Pension Fund. And he was subject to bullying, which was then sort of proved in, um, in a hearing that he had been the victim of this kind of retaliation. But he just felt that he wasn't well enough to sort of follow up what he calls the private interest issue. That's the issue of retaliation against himself, in addition to the whistleblowing claim. Um, his health wouldn't allow it because taking a major bank to court is an incredibly stressful thing. He started an action against them because he was approaching the six-year time limit and he had to, um, without uh, unless without that he he'd have been out of time. But this was really stressful for him. I mean, even when he did that, it was uh, it t- really really took its toll. Um, so, for as I said, one of the things about this sort of whistleblowing journey is number one, it is a long process over time. But the second thing is, it usually splits off into two issues, especially when people find themselves the subject of retaliation. So suddenly, after, if you are, it becomes about a articulating the wrongdoing and seeking justice and, ret- and um, correcting that and B, struggling to seek um, recognition for the retaliation you've experienced. So you suddenly become the kind of manager of two campaigns, if you like, uh, which kind of ensures that the whole thing keeps, um, keeps going. Okay, so that's to do with time and self-esteem. The, the second kind of major aspect of time is to do with cash, basically, and, uh, and money. And what many people find is that when you're engaging in any of these kind of struggles, simply being involved in this over a long period of time means you're out of work. You're not looking for work. If you realise the amount of time it takes to be a whistleblower, you literally have to get up in the morning and start consulting legal documents. You have to start finding who will help you. You have to understand these technicalities. It's almost a full-time unpaid job in itself. You wouldn't really have much time to take on any other work. Um, so it really does kind of... Eat away at your resources. and that's before you even start to talk about um, financial or sorry legal help. So obviously legal assistance is extremely expensive uh, in these cases. and time manages to eat away at that as well. So Linda Almonte, who's based in Texas, so she blew the whistle on JP Morgan's credit card fraud. Uh, What she was realising is, you know, when you run up a credit card bill and at the end is the amount. So JP Morgan would regularly package um, credit card debt of, say, 100 people's credit card debts would be put into a package and sold to a debt collection agency in bundles, that's And so the debt collection agency would obviously pay. This is kind of standard stuff. Then they chase it up and they get what they can. But there was, um, according to Linda, there was fraud happening so that the actual amounts at the bottom of the credit card bill were being inflated by J.P. Morgan in order to get more money from the debt collection agency when they were selling them on. And uh, she claimed that it was actually the lowest socioeconomic individuals who were the victims of this, the kinds of people who don't challenge their credit card Bills who don't, you know, pay attention to it, or were less likely to feel that they could stand up to the bank, basically. So really, kind of victimising the poorer members of society. So this was her claim, and when she raised it, she was actually let go from the bank. And unfortunately, this was Texas, which is one of the hardest uh, legal systems for kind of employment disputes. But she found that um, again, time was just eating away at her finances. She ended up in order to keep her kids her children the school that they were in she had to sort of rent a motel room so they were all sort of living in a motel room because she couldn 't afford the rent in her house and various sorts of pressures uh, so she ended up doing what many whistleblowers do uh, settling with the bank when they offered her a settlement to stay silent about this um, situation. She obviously broke the settlement after that or the terms of the settlement because she spoke out about it but um for her, money became uh, a huge pressure. So she's Linda Almonte, based in Texas. Martin Woods, then, he is based in Florida. He's an interesting guy. He was a, a policeman from London and based in the Florida Bank of Wakovia. So what Martin found was he was working as an anti-money laundering officer, and he found out that, um, in fact his job was to monitor accounts to see if anything weird was going on and he noted that there was huge amounts of traveller's checks all sequentially numbered all for very round numbers very large numbers the kind of numbers that no traveller really ever uses um, 100,000 here all being lodged into this account so it was classic money laundering by um, what he assumed to be Mexican sort of drug lords because of the Florida location and he'd worked in the area for years so he knew what he was looking at his bank didn't really um, listen to him at all. And so he tried to raise it to his boss, wasn't listened to, uh, kept kind of bringing it up. It turned out he got a phone call one day from the US Department of Justice and they said, well, Martin, we know what is happening at Wachovia and we know you're trying to do something from the inside and we know you're getting nowhere. We'd like to build a case secretly with you, if you don't mind, for the next year or two. So he said, great. So he worked with the Department of Justice uh, to bring about a case against Wachovia, which ended up as the largest fine against a bank for money laundering facilitation um, in the United States when it was actually made a couple of years ago. So that was Woods. But while he was uh, blowing the whistle, he was let go from his organisation. And he talks about how when he was taking a case against his organisation, which he still had to do, this partnership with the Department of Justice didn't make him immune in any way from uh, this employment issue. And he talks about how it's David versus Goliath. you know, And Goliath, the organisation, the bank, has $800 an hour lawyers coming out their ears. He talks about how the stakes are high if you lose, you've lost your job, you've lost your livelihood. You look at your wife and your three kids and you feel, I've let you down so bad. If I kept my mouth shut, everything would be going along fine. So he talks about just exactly the sort of the weight in terms of the monetary um, inequality between himself and the organisation. And again, time is a huge factor in that because these uh, struggles, these legal battles, are exactly related to time. Eugene Macerlane, who's the Allied Irish Bank whistleblower here in Ireland, um, people would have come across, um, who went to the central bank with various claims about um, misconduct uh, with the bank overcharging its business customers back in the mid-2000s. But he also talked about you know, the family is the most important thing you think about, and that weighs most heavily with people. In terms of impact on the family, and certainly I found that, so what many people talked about is this issue of money is not just a personal thing but also something that you 're very conscious of the debilitating and the you know, the long term effect on the family of being out of work of um, struggling uh, with money interestingly, with regards to this money aspect, similar to what I mentioned with self esteem is it was it 's only after you get to know someone over a long period of time that you realise that the money issue is an issue so in many cases actually in one particular case that stands out I was um, asked by one of my interviewees I could put in the, the book I was writing the research I was doing all the details about the retaliation he'd experienced, all the details about various mental health issues he'd struggled with, which was all typical for a whistleblower story. But they just he didn't want me to write about how he was surviving on, you know, €100 Euros a week, that that was the thing he was not going to talk about because the stigma of being broke for him meant it was just too much. Uh, and I asked, why is this? And he said, I'm trying to convince. He was still struggling to make his story... Um, heard to, to have his uh, case heard against the bank. He said, I'm trying to convince other people in professional roles, in financial services and in legal roles, and they will look down on me if they think I'm broke. They'll be able to listen to anything, but not that I can't afford to have you know, a nice latte or eat in a good restaurant. So again, you have a sort of a social stigma that people nearly buy into and reinforce by their actions and behaviours when it comes to pretending that impoverished um, situation is not a feature of whistleblowing um, over the long term, which it definitely is. Okay, so the final aspect is taking this together um, time obviously eats away its self-esteem, as the time of the finance there's this extremely strong temptation to quit uh, when you bring all this together because what often happens in these cases is in order to bring the case to a close and to have the, I suppose, yeah, to bring uh, closure to the situation, um, the bank or the financial services organization will offer to settle with the whistleblower. Um, And in this case, it can be very, very tempting to take that settlement. Now... You think that we often hear about, you know, when a settlement happens in the court that the case is closed and the deal is done and everything's fine, but in fact, when it comes to a whistleblower case, if you settle with your organisation, it typically comes with a confidentiality clause, so nobody on the outside will ever hear about the wrongdoing. You'll get a certain amount, which, if you think about your earnings over a lifetime, might sound like a big bonus, you know, Paul Morris. H-Boss in Halifax in the UK, he got, yeah, 800,000 or something. Sherry Hunt in the US, she availed of the bounty situation they have over there for whistleblowers. She got 30 million. Um, so various sorts of, uh, well, that was more a reward than a settlement. In settlement terms, you were usually talking maybe sort of eight, nine 900,000 for some of these Individuals, But I suppose it's, it's a lifetime's earning that they have lost on, one, on the one hand. But mainly, on the, sec, the second thing is that the, the wrongdoing will by no means be addressed because of this confidentiality clause. And whistleblowers know this. And so for many of them, the decision to settle is a really, really difficult one because you know what's going to happen or actually what's not going to happen. And you have spent years trying to bring this point to the public's attention. And so it really is giving up uh, for some people. Graham Milne at Lloyd's, this quote talks about look, it's and again time is a thing. It's a depressing to fight against so many people and to be let down time and time again. You think maybe this person will give me a remedy and you know it doesn't happen. It's completely gut wrenching. I don't know. Um, people often do give up. A lot of people go on and get nowhere. So there's this sort of sense of um, you know, finality about it and, uh, and sense that it's just a losing battle. Why keep fighting? Uh, As I said, Linda Almonte there in Texas to move her children out of the motel room took the settlement offered by J.P. Morgan. Paul Moore at Halifax in the UK is an interesting case because when he took this 800,000 a uh, pound settlement in, in exchange for his silence about what he had seen at the Halifax Bank when they were doling out mortgages um, that they shouldn't have been giving. You know, He really discusses the dilemma and how you are looking at your family on one hand and they're all, all trying to convince you to settle. Your lawyers are telling you to settle because it's just going to be such a long struggle. And so the temptation is uh, really so strong. Martin Woods, the anti-money launderer at Wachovia, talks about it. And he says, look, I know that, he said, I'm going to settle with this bank. I know it's fundamentally wrong. I simply don't want to, but I will be settling. I can't be fighting the whole world for everybody else. So this kind of sums it up, you know, how long of my life do I have to give over to this struggle just so people will become aware of this? Do I have to kind of completely sacrifice my well-being and uh, livelihood and that of my family? So these are three kind of strong aspects of time. Um, the time and self-esteem, time and money and the third one, the very strong temptation to quit. But just finally, there was a fourth aspect of time that seemed to, while all of these three really contributed to a kind of an eating away of a person's sense of self-identity, if you like, or they made the struggle extremely difficult um, for these uh, whistleblowers, this fourth aspect of time is unusual for me because it actually gave people some sort of sense of strength and sense of um, of help, and this is what I'm going to talk about now. So, people tended also very strongly to present themselves as temporarily located. Now, what I mean by that is there was in people's conversations and talking about how you get through the struggle, there was very much the idea that you know you're located in a long temporal durée, if you like, or continuity that stretched back into the past, first of all, and this often people would talk about you know, family members generations ago who would stick up for doing what's right, or fellow countrymen, historical figures in the person's country and like-minded public figures from the past who were classed as dissenters in the past. So sort of like I am a member of this sort of temporal continuity, if you like, and that offered people a sense of, of help and Just as an example of this, Rudolf Elmer, um, he was a tax evader, whistleblower. He talks about how you know my, he talks about himself in the past, even when I was a young man of 20 or 22, you know, playing soccer, they tried to bribe me, and I didn't take the bribe. I did the opposite, and I'm pretty solid. I could have used the money, but I haven't changed that much. So he talks about a sort of a past self that, um, that he harks back to. But others, like back to Graham at Lloyd's Bank, He talks about, look, I'm descended from a long line of social reformers. They're all mad, you know. One is paint portrait in the trade union um, congress house. Fighters of their day. His sister was a philanthropist who fought to improve conditions. So, you know, these, these things are genetic. My family, there's a tendency to refuse to kowtow. The moment someone tries to put on you, we resist. So that's who we are. So sort of generations ago, this sort of past identity, if you like, where he sees himself as a family member located um, in this long kind of flow of individuals. Similarly to casting back into the past, the idea of positioning oneself to, in, into the future was also the final sort of aspect of time that seemed really key. So if you talk about uh, back to Olivia Green, who blew the whistle on Irish Nationwide and spoke out about Michael Fingleton... She very much talks about this future self, this future Olivia. I don't want to be in 20 years' time looking back and wishing I'd done something. I did it, I've done it, but I will never get a job in financial services again. It's been tough, but I'm not going to be one of those people who worked, who I worked with who will look back and say, God, I wish I had the opportunity. So for her, the present, as with many of these individuals, is really difficult, whereas Projecting a sort of a desire or a fantasy onto a sort of a future self who will look back on the present and be glad of what one went through was um, extremely helpful. S- Martin Wood sums it up and he says, you know, at the end of the day, when your grandkids Google you, what do you want them to find out about you? So this again is a sort of a sacrifice of a present struggle for um, the, the notion of a future legacy. And just... Rudolf in Switzerland, you know he says, "This is so key for him. He understands now what he's doing, because it's about the next generation, um, and that makes sense to him. It's worthwhile going through the struggle, and it's worthwhile continue, it's worthwhile not giving up. He talks about, yeah, his, his daughter and his daughter's children and how it's these individuals that um, will sort of benefit from it. Okay, so just to kind of sum up, in terms of this idea of time, there does seem to be a strong aspect of time that really does contribute to an annihilation or a a chipping away of self, of a a strong sense of self, whether it's to do with self-esteem, whether it's to do with the, the sort of the impact of financial... Um, Struggles, or whether it's to do with the sort of temptation to quit, and yet time also acts as a resource for individuals being able to present themselves as sort of temporarily located. So, in terms of how we could understand this, um, there's a number of sort of ideas. In terms of time and identification, the first one. We know from many sort of studies of organizations, particularly those that take, say, a psychoanalytic view, that the organizations that we're in, even if we're not whistleblowers, they tend to be a strong source of anxiety. And there's been work since the Tavistock group in the 1950s looking at the notion of organizations as both givers of anxiety and containers of our anxieties. And here we very much see that in an extreme, extreme case, these whistleblowers who struggle to resist against the organization Um, find themselves in a position of extreme anxiety, much of which is exacerbated by time. But yet at the same time, time seems to offer a sort of an alleviation or a salve by this idea of positioning yourself as between a past and a future self. So this kind of ambivalence aspect where time both uh, exacerbates the anxiety and also alleviates it. The second point just to note is I understand that for me in my position as interviewer, in many cases, when we're interviewing people and talking about things like self and identity, that we almost conjure up... We don't conjure up a direct concept, hopefully, but when in the interview situation, one crystallizes one's sense of self in response to the presence of the other, if you like. So, you know, we tend to go around with sort of this wooly melee of stuff in our head, and it's only when someone says, well, account for yourself or explain to me what's going on, that that would crystallize in a concept that makes sense. So it's just to note that I do understand methodologically here that as interviewer we call forth uh, people into certain positions, not by directing what they're going to say but simply the interaction of the interview means that people are asked to account for themselves. Um, The third point to note that I found interesting was this aspect of almost performativity here. And here I mean that while time was a source of suffering to do with, say, financial uh, struggle and also to do with self-esteem, I found repeatedly that people felt that they needed to perform in ways as if this wasn't the case. So act like money wasn't a problem when it was, or act like employability wasn't a problem, almost in a self-reinforcing way, in that in debates on resistance and whistleblowing, these things will never come to the fore as long as people sort of actively try to maintain this charade that things like self-esteem and things like uh, poverty and um, finan- real financial struggle aren't a problem. So as long as people are sort of pretending that they're not, these things will never become part of the discussion or part of the discourse. This is the, the internalization of the stigma that goes on. And the final point just to make is that in this case, in, in this study, time seems to be distinctly political in that... It's not benign. Time in whistleblowing studies is something that can, for all of these reasons, force individuals into a settlement um, and into closing the case. And this has distinct political effects if we understand that um, many cases that do settle Uh, don't go forward to the regulatory authority. For example, in the UK, under PEDA law, which is whistleblowing discrimination law, uh, 70% of cases there never make it to the UK financial regulator, the FCA. And that's standard. The FCA are talking about bringing in ways of changing that, but that's certainly the situation at the moment. And I suppose what I'm trying to argue here is that time is an active active participant um, in that sort of political aspect of the silencing of wrongdoing. Okay, so that brings the talk to a close, and uh, thanks very much for listening.